What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's Halloween weekend, a spooky time enough. And now we'll look into the ghosts of our pasts, ghosts that speak to us of our own shared humanity, wherever our ancestors came from, and how we cope with their choices. We try to understand their times. And here to talk about it is Gabriella Gabrielle Robinson, author of Appy's Berlin Diaries, My Quest to Understand My Grandfather's Nazi Past. Welcome, Gabrielle. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Diane. I've been looking forward to this. I'm going to give listeners a little bit of background on your book, which is a sweeping um, look at the history and various viewpoints explaining the history Um, And it leaves the reader the ability to draw their own conclusions. After your mother's death, Gabrielle Robinson found diaries that her grandfather had kept while serving as a doctor in Berlin, 1945, only to discover that her beloved Abby had been a Nazi. Abby's Berlin Diaries offers a firsthand and personal perspective on the far-reaching aftershocks of the Third Reich and the author's own inconvenient past. It was published by She Writes Press, and congratulations, Gabrielle, that you were able to write this book and break a silence on your on your own past. It's actually your grandfather's past. I wonder if you would, I mean, you know, I, I just in that very brief paragraph, only to discover that your beloved Abby had been a Nazi. Okay, let's tease this out because I think there's a lot to be said for understanding that there were many different kinds of roles. There were people who actually participated. There were people who actually were inflammatory. There were people who actually carried things out. I wonder if you just give listeners an idea of what your grandfather, Abby, was doing during the Second World War. Yeah, I mean, your introduction really shows the kind of two cornerstones of my book. One, his serving as doctor in Berlin in 1945 and what that was like, and I'm sure we'll get to some of those details as well. But the other one was his membership in the Nazi party, which had never been mentioned in my family. And in Germany altogether at that time, there was, um, in the 50s when I grew up, there was a complete silence about the Nazi past. Believe it or not, in the gymnasium where I got a terrific education, our history classes ended with the end of World War One, as if mm. nothing had happened after mm. that. So there was the silence, and the silence was also in my family. So it came as a complete shock to me when I found the diaries, which in themselves were hidden. I found them only after my mother's death. And kept seeing these two letters, P and G, 
And at first, I was so overwhelmed by what I read about the conditions in Berlin, the constant bombing, the ruins everywhere, the fires, the little they could do for the wounded and dying in the medical cellars and all these details, that I didn't pay enough attention to it. But suddenly, at one point, it hit me. Oh, God, PG means Parteigenossen, member of the party. And that's what stopped me in my tracks at first. I did not go on with the telling the story of the diaries as I had intended uh, at mm-hmm. first, but I did what my mother did. I hid them again, and I didn't tell anyone, I, not even my husband. Mm-hmm. But what got me to write uh, were two things. One, I started to read about the Nazi period, which I'd never done before. My field is, I'm an English professor, but my field is modern drama. And so that's what my bookshelves were lined with. But now I started to read about that time. And historians kept saying, these kind of personal documents are important because history is not just made or not even mainly probably made by you know, the leaders, the big people, but it's also the ordinary citizen. So I was beginning to think about doing it, but what pushed me to write was um, Edward Ball's Slaves in the Family. I was working on a book on African-American housing segregation at the time, mm-hmm. and when I read the introduction to that book where he says, when he talked to his family about writing the slaves his grandfather had kept, they were going at him as strongly as they could, saying, you're going to dig up our grandfather and hang him. You cannot do this. You can't expose our family like that. Mm -hmm. And he, like me, stopped at first. But then he thought, as he records it in that intro there, um, that, no, he may not be responsible for what his grandfather did, but he is accountable. Mm-hmm. And that was as if he was speaking to me. We are accountable for our past. And mm-hmm. I am accountable for, you know, the silence that had reigned and that, you know, the past that I'd, you know, sort of evaded all my life. Well, I think, so, okay, let's, I, what happened to me when I was reading, because I think this is an excellent point that you're making Let's define accountability. So I looked it up. It's um, accountability. Okay, being accountable of a person, organization, or institution required or expected to justify actions or decisions. Responsible parents could be held accountable for their children's actions. Um, And if we're to be accountable for previous generations, we need to break it down. And what you've done, I think, by writing the book is bringing it to light. So you've accepted, I think, by virtue of writing the book, your your own accountability. I mean, do you feel that way? Do you feel that you kind of came out of the closet by writing the book? Uh, yes, in a, in a certain way, because my grandfather was really the one who had given me the happiest years of my childhood and my only stable home. And I did not want to expose him. But Mm -hmm. I felt we need to talk about this and to talk about the limits of accountability, but also the that there is a political responsibility for all of us. You know, one quote that kept haunting me on this was Martin Luther King, I think in letter from Birmingham jail, 
where he says something, I'm paraphrasing wildly here, but that we don't only have to repent the vicious actions of the bad people, but the terrible silence of the good people. So he sees accountability even for keeping silent if something horrendous is done in your country's name. I want to um, also talk about, uh, again, Abi. Uh, Here here he is. He is in Berlin, and he's an ophthalmologist. So his role was as a doctor. He did not participate in party activities. He did not necessarily, and he certainly maintained a, a practice, a medical practice that included treating Jewish people. He did not yeah. discriminate against them. Um, and I just want to read a, a tiny passage from Appy about the period of you know 1945 Berlin, which many of us don't understand at all, being totally, it was occupied by the Russians, the Americans, the British, and the French. And these various sectors were basically one more hostile than the other. Um, particularly the the Soviet, uh, the the Russian, and the the Americans were quite antagonistic. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to read your words, and I think it comes out of Abby's diary. Amidst the tortured, tired, starved, and fearful faces of almost everyone, one sees groups laden with parcels, dressed in tatters, deathly exhausted, not daring to raise their eyes above the ground, devoid of any hope, because they recognize that even with the best of will, no one can help them find, no one can help them in any way. I mean, it's a Mm -hmm. a level of desperation that we have not um, thankfully experienced. I want to just ask you, you know, in terms of, you know, telling these individual stories, it reveals how individual circumstances are, that it varies so much from person to person. And this is not to defend Appy either. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, but perhaps in reply to Martin Luther King, I want to ask you, um, because you are a historian and, and um, you've written magnificently about this period, do you think that standing by and the the incrimination of silence is better understood now because of the Holocaust? I I am not sure. Because of the situation at the time, um, I think maybe my book can in that way help that, um, that first of all, readers might ask themselves, well, what would I have done in a situation like this? when even listening to the BBC could bring the death sentence, right? And there were the spies everywhere, the denouncers, many of them not even party members, but who just worked for the Nazis in a fervent and uh, devoted way. So I kept certainly asking myself that. What would I have done in that situation? I would, you know, one likes to think one would have been brave enough to stand up against the Nazis and Hitler and uh, what they were doing. But I don't think, I think I would have done what my grandfather has done, uh, that is concentrate on his family and his practice and surviving Mm -hmm. and keeping silent. 
you mm-hmm. know, it's often called, there was sort of a post-war term for that in Germany. They called it inner emigration, that you yes. sort of emigrated from the present and just kept your head down. And uh, I think probably many of us would have acted that way. I would think I would have, and that certainly gave me pause, too, with, um, you know, what Martin Luther King says. And also, the thing why I could not assess a definitive uh, measure of guilt, so to speak, on my grandfather is because I did not know what he precisely did between 1933 and 1945 in terms of small acts of cowardice or small acts of bravery and courage. You know, mm-hmm. things I sort of asked myself was, say I'm uh, seeing a demonstration uh, in the streets as I'm walking and everybody is raising their hands in the Hitler salute. Would I have just gone by, just kept my hand down, or would I have been afraid that would expose me to the Gestapo, to the secret police, and, you know, get me imprisoned and so on? And would I have given the Hitler salute? I mean, these sort of small, everyday things. Um, mm-hmm. And I do not know those. Those only he can know himself what he did and what he didn't do. And he keeps saying in his diary, the times that he addresses that, which aren't that many, that he never did anything to hurt anyone, that none of his, uh, what he achieved or so had come at the cost of someone else. I took yes. that as sort of a weird thing that he did not do anything to hurt Jewish colleagues. And in fact, I have a letter from a Jewish colleague who had gone to somewhere in Latin America and who thanked my grandfather. Uh, but mm-hmm. he didn't, wasn't specific, but he said he's one of the few people he's still writing to. So yeah. what did he do? How did he, you know, navigate that situation? And I do not know. Well, this soul searching that you did, this very honest soul searching, Gabrielle, is reflected in this book and also the breadth of your intellect by seeking out all of these different points of view by writers of history of the period. I really think that this idea of guilt and shame and taking on this burden, the shame aspect is, is, you know, helplessness is a big component. And when you do feel helpless because your neighbors are being carted off because the Gestapo realized that they were not, uh, they were listening to the BBC at night or they were not saluting or, you know, we really have to examine, I think, also human nature. Um, and, and I think this idea of what you touched on, judgment Judgment is the ultimate conceit because it cannot be proven. We don't know what we would have done in similar circumstances. Mm -hmm. And it is human nature to want to survive, to want to protect your family. So, you know, I think about, of course, we think about Schindler. We think about people who had activism on their part. But those those acts, it, it can't necessarily be blamed for ordinary citizens to not be able to jeopardize the safety of themselves and their family. Um, And I think it's very, um, it it, it opens us up in a way um, to compassion that I didn't expect to feel, but that you actually did Mm -hmm. bring out um, in, in the book. 
And this idea of shame, yeah. shame for one's country runs deep. You, you, you were obviously, you were born in Germany. You went to gymnasium. Um, you, your mother was um, working. Uh, she was a single parent because your father was shot down. And early, I mean, you were an infant. Um, and I, I, you know, so you were with Appy and Nusi, his wife. Um, they were basically your family, your active mm-hmm. um, daily family. And I wondered about um, this idea of um, of shame. Um, you know, we you sort of dropped you dropped that sort of hint that Germans do feel shame and you felt ashamed once you had come to America about being even German. Um, yes, very how much do you, so. How do you dissect that um, in, in retrospect and with the knowledge that you gained by writing this book? Has it changed? Well, I mean, you really bring up very uh, good and uh, crucial point at the heart of this. Yes, I think I'm typical for my generation to feel ashamed of being German. But, you know, even now, I think for many people, when Germany comes up, everybody thinks of Hitler and the Holocaust, right? Uh, And, Mm -hmm. you know, we keep having parallels between Hitler and uh, people here and so on. You know, it's just it's just still very much present in that way. And Germany is sort of identified with that. Um, but the other point you make is really, I would hope is at the heart of my book, and many reviewers have actually said that, that they never expected to feel compassion for a, a Nazi or, you know, a member of the party. And um, I think this compassion and empathy is what... I would really like it to be one of the takeaways that to see, first of all, the profound impact history has made on my grandfather's life, right? He served in two world wars. He lost his only son, his home and his livelihood. And um, uh, the writer Stefan Zweig calls it the volcanic eruptions of the 20th century. He lived through them all. And that to have some compassion and empathy for someone, no matter how different he or she is from us, and to see that there is really more that binds us together as humans than separates us. I would love that to be one of the takeaways. The other Mm -hmm. one would be maybe for people to reflect the power of history on their own lives, because all our lives... um, intersect with history and are very much influenced by it. So Mm -hmm. to reflect on what role the past plays in our lives or the the lives of our family, I would Mm -hmm. like people to think about that as well. It's tremendously challenging material. I do think that it invites us to go into our darkest corners and ask very honest questions about our individual responsibilities and our individual sense of powerlessness at times when governments are enacting policies that fly in the face of our human values. We are going to take a commercial break now, but when we come back, we'll continue this penetrating conversation with Gabrielle Robinson, author of Appy's Berlin Diaries, My Quest to Understand, 
my grandfather's Nazi past. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're privileged this morning to be talking with Gabrielle Robinson, author of Appy's Berlin Diaries. I will give a little background about Gabrielle. Gabrielle tells stories about people that reveal their personal situation within its historical context. One reason for her fascination with the intersection of personal and historical stems from her own experience. Born in Berlin in 1942, her father's fighter plane was shot down in 1943. After her family was bombed out twice, they fled Berlin in 1945, but not Appy, the grandfather, and became refugees in a North German village. This was the beginning of a string of migrations from a village in Northern Germany to an Ursuline boarding school in Vienna, another on the Baltic Sea, and then several years uh, in Darmstadt, where she earned the baccalaureate. In 1962, Gabrielle moved to Urbana, Illinois with her mother and stepfather, and in 1964, won a Woodrow Wilson fellowship, fellowship and got an MA at Columbia University. She then moved to London with her Scottish husband and earned a PhD from the University of London in 1968. She's taught at the University of Illinois, um, this is literature, English literature, um, and your son was born there um, uh, in South Bend, Indiana. So now you're settled in South Bend, Gabrielle, with your husband, Mike, a sociologist, and your cat, Max, and your son, Benedict, is an English professor at SUNY Stony Brook. Um, you say that perhaps it's a sign of having found a home that um, you've won a number of local and statewide awards for your writing and community engagement. You've written actually seven other books. And I, I start with the idea of telling stories that you say at the very beginning of your intro, that you tell stories that reveal their personal situation within a historical context, and there are many. Um, you make it your business to encourage others to, to tell their stories um, finding it to be therapeutic and expansive. 
How best would someone contact you if they wanted to exchange information with you or to enable people to tell their own stories? Oh, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because this is really one of my passions. Maybe the old teacher in me or just seeing how important it is for people to come to terms and understand their own past. And the even the very fact of writing, starting to write, no matter whether you're writing to write a book for publication or just a little a little thing for your children and grandchildren, the very process of writing will bring up memories and will bring up things that you hadn't thought about. Um, uh, just a quick uh, example, I'm probably getting away from things here. When I was writing about my grandfather's death, I first wrote about, you know, all the typical things, how I would never see him again and so on, just reflecting on it from my old self of what it was like. But it wasn't anything really genuine. It was a little cliched. And as I was writing more of this, suddenly what came to me was that the, even he died in the night. The next morning, what I saw were his gloves lying at the bottom of the stairs with the fingers still bent from his hand. He had thrown them away quickly because he wanted to reach his bed before collapsing. Mm-hmm. And the surgical gloves. The physical gloves, yeah. The gloves with the bent fingers just became, they stayed there for days. People didn't, nobody took them away. Became a sort of image of his death that I dreamt about and that was very much part of me. I mean, that was sort of what his death meant to me. But I had forgotten that for 50 years and it was the process of writing that brought mm-hmm. that memory back to life. But there would be others too, Um it is really important, and also, if you don't get to it sooner rather than later, all the people who could tell you about the past, your grandparents or uncles and aunts, may no longer be with us, and that part of life would so totally disappear. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. Yes, as for contacting me, um, either through my website or through my email, are you going to um, do you want you me just to just spell us? it out? Yeah. Um, yes, please, please. Um, my name is Gabriela Robinson, so it's G-R-O-B-I-N-S-O, but there's no N in it. So it's G-Robinso at I-U-S-B-S-M-Boy dot E-D-U. That's your educational program. And please post. contact me because I'm talking either on the phone or via email to people all across the country about this, about mm-hmm. how to get started, what are the challenges, what are the rewards, uh, how do you get stuck, what's the um, role of research, because research is important. You need to do some extra research in order to fill in details and fill in background. But mm-hmm. you mustn't get bogged down by research. I have known so many people who did research, research, and then had you know, huge numbers of notes and and uh, references, but they didn't. It was overwhelming. That that didn't help. So always do writing and research together. Write and do some research and incorporate it, and eventually you will know what to leave out and what is useful background material. 
Well, I have to say, I think you would be a great guide to that because this book interweaves the personal and the historic in a really beautiful way. Um, I want to just also touch on something that you mentioned about, um, you know, you, the U.S. and people in this country. I had come across another example of what I think we're talking about, and that is the individual within their historic context how we feel powerless at times to, and I think we can resonate with this from our recent history, even the history of, you know, the Afghanistan exodus and many other situations where we feel entirely helpless. Um, And one perfect, I think, example is racism. There's a book also by Peggy Mm -hmm. Wallace Kennedy about her father, who was George Wallace, one of the most ardent advocates of segregation and basically proponents of racism in our history. He was governor of Alabama. Um, The murders Mm -hmm. of African-Americans occurred in Selma, Alabama. And she wrote a book called The Broken Road, A Daughter's Journey to Reconciliation. Um, She chooses to actively make amends, um, not just by writing her book about how it completely threw their family apart because she grew up with an entirely different view of humanity, joined forces with a lot of civil liberties uh, leaders, including the kings, um, and, you know, actually walked across that bridge um, with with advocates of of uh, Amer- African American rights, civil rights, um, and I felt that in some ways, writing the book is a way of crossing that divide between individual helplessness and um, governmental policies that you can make a story and make a statement by introducing us to the lives of people that you're very close to and trying to understand them. Do you think that your overall themes resonate with the U.S. history of repression in the past as well? Yeah, I think, uh, thank you. Uh, I have made a note of The Broken Road. I did not know that book, but I will certainly read it. Um, because, you know, also the reconciliation aspect, not just to condemn people. That's one important thing about all this, is that we don't just want to condemn people who think differently and believe things that we think, you know, make no sense, uh, because they also have their own history where they are coming from, and we need to understand them rather than to condemn them. So I think reconciliation is important here. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, I'm not sure whether that would fit there, but um, Seth, uh, Cass Sunstein, I think is his name, he's a Harvard professor, has written a book or edited a book which was called Can It Happen Here? Yes. Um, clearly a reference to, you know, Hitler's takeover and what he did and so on. And um, I think... The way to avoid this and the way maybe to reconciliation is to honestly remember the past. Mm-hmm. So try to get to the, you know, as much as we can to what actually happened, not 
in order to blame, and I think you're so right about blame is not getting us anywhere, right? It, uh, it just aggravates the situation. Not in order to blame, but in order to understand. Mm-hmm. And wanna... in order even to have what we talked about in the previous section, in order to have empathy and understanding and compassion for others. But yes. we do need to face the past, honestly. Mm-hmm. We- Yes, and it with a clear eye. And I think that the fact that you wrote this book with such an, a balance of research, factual understanding, um, because taking our own prejudices and our own biases, which are built on a fantasy of what we think we would do, which there's no substantiation for, um, it's a judgment that we inflict on the context and times of other people that we cannot hope to understand. Um, I think Hannah yeah, Arendt is, is, yeah, it's a woman, Hannah Arendt, with the writer that you delved into extensively as well, understanding another person's life, um, how the, the, the physical impossibility of it, their psychic life. And I think that's interesting. You also brought out, um, Joachim Fest uh, wrote a memoir about his father. Um, he, Joachim Fest is a fervent anti-Nazi um, and then talking about the Nazi persecution, persecution of the Jews, he writes, I did not want to talk about it then, and I don't want to talk about it now. It reminds me that there was absolutely nothing I could do with my knowledge, not even talk about it. Mm-hmm. This strikes me as a powerlessness that you have crossed the threshold over this powerlessness. You have confronted this past. Um, I wonder if how it makes you feel. Um, has it been healing? Does it make you feel more whole? Um, how is it for you and how has it been for responders, readers of your book? I have been very, uh, of course, delighted but also humbled by the responses of how people understood, you know, the situation better and did not just see the stereotype of Germany, a.k.a. Hitler, a.k.a. Holocaust, you know, being just all the same and everyone being a Nazi and what that meant, uh, you know, this complete black and white uh, picture. So I think that... That has been uh, really a very much a positive outcome that I had not expected. Um, and I'm very grateful for. Mm. Because, nice. you know, I, I still feel that there is, you know, that in some ways we all act politically, no matter if we, even if we don't do anything, right? It's a political act in a way. Mm-hmm. And to even be aware of that, for all of us, is, I think, a good thing. In terms of uh, that um, can-it-happen-here situation, um, there clearly are a lot of parallels where we are a bit endangered these days, but I think the major difference is, and one uh, which maybe has not been brought out quite enough, is that the Weimar Republic, to which then Hitler, you know, which he uh, just shoved away with a hand, was Germany's first democracy. Mm 
They mm-hmm. never had a democracy before. Uh, Bismarck united the country uh, in the 19th century um, because it was just little fiefdoms before where every duke or noble person who owned that part had total say over everything. There was no um, other law and order and so on, but what, you know, the leader of each state or each little area had to say. So uh, he united Germany, which was a good thing, and he brought in a parliament, but he did not believe in parliament or democracy. He believed in strong people ruling under Prussian leadership, uh, you know, for Germany. So there was no real democracy there. Weimar was the real first attempt to have a democratic system, and they just could not assert themselves. Um, You know, a little example is they reinstituted reinstituted the um, uh, flag of the revolutionaries of 1848 who wanted uh, united Germany and law and order and uh, a democratic system. The ball uh, is black, red, and gold. Um, that is still the flag of Germany now. And uh, the, that was the Weimar flag, but you don't see it anywhere. What you see in Germany at that time is either still the a uh, black and white flag of the emperor who had long gone, you know, in 1919, um, or the Nazi flag. Those mm. were the flag of the Weimar Republic. And they kept Terrifying. holding elections, and they were all inconclusive. They just couldn't do anything. And there were assassinations, and there was turmoil, there was violence. There was, of course, that huge inflation. Um, mm. So Germany was in really bad shape at the time. And there had been that humiliating uh, peace treaty um, of, after World War One, where Germany lost a third of its territory, had to pay huge reparations, and had to buy the whole guilt of the, um, of the, of the war, of the First War. And many Germans just rebelled against that. And... Mm-hmm. You know, Hitler spoke to that, too, that he wanted to restore national pride and, you know, and that he could, was the only one who could do that and so on. Yes, that's so the slippery slope. There's a huge difference. Yeah. Yes, but there's I a think... huge difference between that and where we are today, where we do have a centuries-old democracy and a legal system. And, you know, I'm, I'm taking reassurance from that. I would love to do that completely wholeheartedly. I must recall that in Charlottesville, there was a Nazi flag. So I do want to Mm -hmm. mention, we're going to take a break now, this very compelling conversation with Gabrielle Robinson. I do want to mention, um, you know, when you're talking about the unassuming way that Hitler assumed power, he was also condoned by none other than Winston Churchill. World leaders around the world were very supportive of Hitler, not knowing his hidden Mm -hmm. agenda. So, you know, there was very little known about him. Um, and then suddenly, as Appy documents in his diary, people started disappearing. He replaced important people and no one knew what was going on. 
Yes, you can try to find out. You can do so at your own peril. You can be killed. Your family can Mm -hmm. be killed. These are very slippery slopes. And we'll continue the very subtle and nuanced conversation with Gabrielle Robinson when we come back after a commercial break. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We are here with Gabrielle Robinson, who's written a memoir ostensibly, but it's also a sweeping historical uh, uh survey of the history of Germany, basically between the wars, as represented by her grandfather, Appy, Appy's Berlin Diaries. We were talking before the break a little bit about um, the perversion of what started out as kind of uh, solid ideals for Germany. And I wondered if you'd Give us a flavor for the book, Appy's Berlin Diaries, Gabrielle, by reading a certain passage from it, whichever one you choose. Thank you. Yes, my grandfather was a very good writer, and he wrote stories, but mainly poems all his life for every major event in our family, you know, New Year's, Christmas, birthdays. He had a wrote a poem that I would recite uh, and it was sort of our secret before the event. You know, I learned it by heart and nobody else knew it. And uh, so I want to read just one passage that gives a bit of the flavor of what it was like um, in Berlin in 1945. Um, this is before the Soviets came in, uh, just during the day and night bombing. Um, and uh, But uh, Berlin was just about to fall. He says, towards evening, the sky to the east is a ghastly sea of smoke. I creep out at 10 o'clock at night to the clinic under whistling grenades and bombs, a wilderness of fire and dust behind it, although already high in the sky, the blood-red moon. He will Mm. also give us scenes, that sort of haunting scenes of, as he's walking, seeing a little group of people Uh, cutting up a dead horse, even while the bombs were falling, and they have no way of cooking the meat. 
and he ends this with God have pity. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's or, talk about you know, this. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the spiritual uh, aspect. Let's talk about um, the role of religion. And I, you know, want to just sort of, you know, backslash art, beauty, the role of writing. Um, What is the role of these, uh, let's say, more ethereal concepts um, in terms of helping us cope with such disastrous calamity what's the role of of uh yeah Appy is also writing he's also documenting and he's also taking himself like both into the moment and then out of the moment with beautiful scenes um from nature what was the role of spirituality and god in terms of having Appy cope and actually even endure what he endured in berlin yeah, thank you for asking that question. Um, yeah, certainly nature was hugely important. There really was no more nature left. And, you know, he was right in the center of Berlin, but there was were only ruins. So all the trees were burnt sticks and there was just no nature. But what there still was were the clouds and the birds. And every free moment that he had, he would sit by his window and look at the clouds and describe what the sky looked like. And uh, if he saw some birds who had also become homeless, uh, describe their flight. And that was one of the real consolations that he had, one of the major ones. The other one was what you also alluded to was his faith. He was a very religious. He was brought up uh, a Protestant and he was a very religious person. And in fact, a prayer sort of begins and ends each entry. A prayer largely that he hoped that we had survived because after we left in February of 45, he had no more contact. You know, Berlin was completely cut off, so there was no contact with us. He couldn't even be sure that we were still alive. And we, of course, didn't know whether he had survived. So these, um, this diaries is in a form of letters to us and both his faith and just the act of writing, it also says something about the importance of writing, um, helped him through this because he made, no matter how exhausted he was in the, at the end of the day, he would always sit down end the day with writing in his diary. And it kept him sane at a certain, you know, really there were, so many moments when he was untethered due to walking through the streets and seeing exactly what you just read, that description. Mind you, this is only 1945. Um, this is not, you know, this is, this is not even a hundred years ago. So um, it, it is, it is something that, you know, the, the poetry and the kind of way that you cope not just the internal the internal immigration, which I thought was a fascinating concept, and the way that sometimes we, you know, it, tipping it even further, numb ourselves or escape, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, in a kind of a in a passive, apathetic way. I don't get that he felt apathy. In fact, he was moved deeply by what he saw and. 
to almost to the verge of, of having a mental collapse. He was a sensitive mm-hmm. soul. Um, so maybe the writing in that way also kept his hope, hopes alive that you were alive, but also gave him, as you say, a kind of an outlet. Eventually, um, and, and before we leave that point, there is an, also a passage, I'll tell you the one that sang for me. Um, you you were with Abby and Yussi. Uh, you were eventually reunited, thank goodness, after this absolutely apocalyptic um, experience of Berlin. Abby did make his way back to you. Um, and you had a scene in the book that I thought was <laughs> the epitome of a metaphor where you make a kite with your grandfather. He's mm-hmm. been... A, a very close um, educator with you. He takes you to, you know, cultural events. He takes you to opera. He always gives you a choice whether you'd rather work or play. Both were honored <laughs> yes. as honored as activities, um, which I thought was I also never made good. those choices. He would have preferred to do work first and play second, but he he went along with it and we played. Yeah, which I think is great. I mean, it does tell you also. The psyche, you know, it needs, we need that. And the metaphor of flying this kite together, tell us about it. You go out, you're flying this kite. Next thing you know, Appy gets distracted and he falls into a ditch. But the kite Mm -hmm. is still flying very, very high. That moment, it was so powerful to me that he, in your eyes, maybe through the diaries, maybe he did fall in a certain way, fall from grace in your eyes, but what you created together still flew. It was still strong. And I wondered if that resonated with you in that way. I am so delighted. to. I don't think anybody has ever pointed out the scene, and yet it is very close to my heart. We had just finished. We would, every fall, we would make a kite, you know, he would be very careful in that, making the balance of the crossbows, and I would do the tail, because uh, with us in Germany, a kite is a drachen, which means a dragon, and so it had mm-hmm. a dragon's tail, and we had just finished, and it was a windy day, and we took it outside, and uh, there were sort of meadows outside in that little German uh, village, and... Um, we, he ran with it because I was too small. I could not hold on to it. And it just thawed up. And then a, a patient of his walked by and he greeted her and didn't look where he was going. And the meadows in this ever waterlogged part of northern Germany, um, the meadows were intersected by lots of little ditches. And he fell into one of these ditches. So I suddenly didn't see him anymore. I hadn't seen how he had fallen. But I ran to the spot and I jumped in with him and we both were laughing. Uh, he was laughing and the, sky, the kite was flying high above us and it was just a wonderful moment for me. It's really one of the uh, sort of one of the best moments of that childhood. It's kind of encapsulated in that. So I'm just delighted you, you pointed that out. Well, I sensed it from your beautiful description. I do also and want to Yes, his joy in things. You know, he really, when we did play, he believed in doing things wholeheartedly, whether it's work or play, and he did play wholeheartedly too. 
I think he um, came within a hair's breadth of losing his mind several times and um, in the diaries document that. But, um, excuse me, eventually um, when uh, when it came to review the party's status, the, the participant's status, your Abbey was exonerated um, because he did continue to treat Jews. And he there was nothing to say that he had, as you say, caused harm to anyone. But he survived in the way that he did. Um, we are going to have to close now. I'm very sad to see this conversation end. But um, Appy's Berlin Diaries is the book. And our guest is Gabrielle Robinson, who has taken us through this very beautiful, personal and historical uh, story, memoir, and um, really enlightening um journey. Thank you so much for being with us, Gabrielle. Thank you. This was an amazing interview. I'm very grateful. Well, we were very grateful for your candor and your courage. There is so much more in the book that you'll want to investigate, all kinds of quotes about collective guilt and how it connects us to one another's experience, which is, after all, the point of all of it. Um, We will be able to contact uh, and follow Gabrielle Robinson through social media. Gabrielle Robinson 97 is the Instagram handle, Facebook, Gabrielle Robinson author, and of course, her website, gabrielrobinson.com. I just want to close with our flawed nature is what binds us together as in our humanity. And that is worth bearing in mind as we go on the cowardice stories that we could all tell and just hope that we are wedged open. Certainly by this book, I was. Uh, Thank you, Gabrielle Robinson. Thank you to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Giolino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and find your truth. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.